So 1 Samuel, we're going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 4, and then we're going to read through chapter 5. But, but first, let me, let me kind of set the stage and give you a, a bit of background. So if you haven't been with us, let me quickly review. We, we've been through three chapters in 1 Samuel so far, and we've kind of seen two things at work. We've seen the rise or the exaltation of, of Samuel through his, his mother and his family, the Lord growing her family and in giving Hannah this special anointed boy, Samuel, who is serving the Lord. We, we last left him in the temple, a young man with an anointing from the Lord. So we saw that in the first three chapters, but we also saw the corruption of the priesthood with, with old man Eli, who was the high priest. He had two sons who were worthless, we saw. They, they despised the Lord. They treated his commands with contempt. And so as a result, we saw last week, the Lord told Eli he would no longer have a family line that served the Lord as priests. He, Eli, and his sons had lost their right to minister as priests to the Lord. And so in order to confirm his word, last week we saw that, that the Lord told Eli that both of his sons were going to die on the same day. So we saw the Lord exalting Samuel and his family, and we saw the Lord bringing down Eli and his family. And that's where our story ended Last week, and so as we turn to chapter 4, this week we're entering what is, what is sometimes called the, the arc narrative. The arc narrative, and it, it's going to run from, from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 7. And so for this time, beginning in chapter 4, the, the shift is away from Samuel, and it's going to focus on the ark of the Lord. In fact, Samuel won't appear again until, I think, the beginning of chapter 7. But, but the ark of the Lord takes center stage, and so this week we're going to see Chapters 4 and 5, which, which we've titled The Story of the Ark, Part 1. And then next week, Lord willing, chapter 6 and 7, we'll see The Story of the Ark, Part 2. And so what, what we'll see in, in these four chapters is the, the journey of the Ark from Shiloh among the Israelites to Ashdod and Gath and Ekron, which is among the Philistines, and eventually back to Israel. But, but we'll see specifically this morning is, is kind of the state of Israel. So the Lord has raised up Samuel, and Samuel is ready to lead this nation, but we're going to get a little glimpse into the state of Israel, especially today as we see how they think about the ark and how they treat the ark and how the Lord deals with them. And, and we will see the, the glory or the power of the Lord um, on display. No thanks to the Israelites. Well, let's, let's read our passage. So, so 1 Samuel chapter 4, I'm going to begin in verse 1. So 1 Samuel 4, beginning in verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, and they brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. Verse 5, as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. 
And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who's come from the battle. I fled from battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. And as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth, and when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not give, she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God had been captured and because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Chapter 5, verse 1. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and they put him back in his place. When, but when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod and and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and they gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the, God, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God the ark of the God of Israel there, but after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. 
So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines, and they said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel, and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Well, let's pray this morning. Father, this morning we pray that, that just like the, the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to heaven, but first water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout and give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Father, we pray that your word this morning, the word that, that we've just read, that has come forth from your word, from your mouth, that, that it would accomplish its purposes here in this place among us. Father, we pray that our hearts would be good soil this morning, receiving nourishment from your word, for there's no other source of life for us. And so we pray that you would water our hearts this morning with your good word. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So chapter 4 and 5 break down into, into three sections, and so we'll work through those three sections together. So we see for first section, the capture of the ark, that's verses 1 through 11 of chapter 4. And then we see the, the death of Eli in, in verses 12 through 22 of chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, we see the, the afflictions of the Philistines or the ark among the Philistines. Let's begin by looking at, at verses 1 through 11 of chapter 4. So we pick up there. We haven't heard about the Philistines yet in 1 Samuel, but from the time of the judges, if you're familiar with the time of the judges, we know the Philistines are, are they're a threat. They're an enemy to the Israelites. And, and later in 1 Samuel, we hear about one particular Philistine who was a great trouble to the Israelites. But, but here in verses 1 and 2, it tells us that there's a battle that's taken place between these two sides. And so this, this battle, they drop the lines, the battle takes place. And at the end of day 1, verse 2 tells us there are 4,000 Israelites dead. Okay, they take the L day 1. Okay, and at the end of it, verse 3, notice how they process their defeat. What's the question they ask? They say, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Do you see that? Why has the Lord defeated us? That, that's a good question for them to ask. The question reflects the, the Israelites' concept of the sovereignty of God. So, so they've, they've gone through battle. They've suffered a horrible defeat at the hands of the Philistines. And they can only assume that God has brought this defeat on them. Why has God defeated us, they ask. They recognize that, that their loss... Any loss has divine implications. How have the gods of, of, of the Philistines defeated Yahweh? That's not the implications that they make. Do you see? They don't say, well, how, how did how, how Dagon win? Instead, the implications of their loss is, why has God done this? It's a good question. But notice it doesn't seem like that, that question sits on them long enough. Because immediately, they don't, they don't think too long about it, immediately their, their answer is implied. Why has the Lord defeated us? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here. We lost because we don't have the Ark. We want the Ark that, they say, it may come among us and save us from the power of the enemy. So they think, okay, trial day one we lost. It's because we didn't have the Ark. As long as we get the Ark here, things are going to go differently. These leaders think, God wasn't with us. His Ark wasn't here. How could we forget? Who forgot that? Hophni and Phineas, how could you forget that? So, so send and bring it back. That's the key to victory. 
That's what they're thinking. And, and so in case you're, you're unfamiliar with the ark, this, it, it's, a, it's a box, a sacred box. It, it's gold-covered, a portable box that can be moved. It's, it's just under four feet long and just over two feet high. And most of the time it sat behind this thick veil, and it was where the presence of the Lord dwelt. Now when they moved, when they, they were in the wilderness, this, this box was portable. So they moved, so it moved with them. But this box, this Ark of the Covenant, was symbolic of the Lord's presence and rule over Israel, his people. It was, it was reminiscent or symbolic of that relationship. It pointed to the Lord's ruling, speaking, and forgiving relationship, his covenant relationship. It was where the presence of the Lord resided, where the Lord met with Moses. It, it had copies of the Ten Commandments. And so for these Israelites, it was much more than a piece of furniture that you'd find at, at the thrift store. This is a sacred piece. And so leaders say, get that ark and let's get it here. Now obviously they should have realized that, that their loss went much deeper than simply not having the ark. And we, we saw just, just last week, the Lord's word was rare in those days. The time of Judges, there, there's, a, there's a drought of God's word. These people and their priests, they don't care about the Lord, or for the most part they don't care about the Lord or his commands. They don't care about God as much as they care about what God can do for them. Right? That's what this shows. It's obvious, isn't it? The ark here is functioning like a rabbit's foot or a good luck charm. Right? As long as we get that, things will go well. We'll win. God will do what we want him to do as long as we get that ark here. And so they send for the ark. And, and I imagine, I mean, maybe some are discerning among the leadership and they, they call for the ark and they see it and they see beside it who's with the ark. The two sons. And maybe it clicks, oh, that's the problem. It's not the ark. It's those guys with the ark. Why are they with it? Right? That's the reason when the ark arrives with the two worthless priests coming along with it, it arrives. Notice verse 9. The Israelites are really happy. In fact, they're earth-shakingly happy. The earth shakes when they're celebrating. The good luck charm has arrived. Victory is theirs. They're ready to fight. And then we might think, oh, okay, we know how this story goes. Victory is the Lord's. Now the Philistines, they're a bit scared. Right? What's going on? Right? They sound really happy over there. Do they know something we don't know? And when they find out what has happened, they say, oh no, we've heard about that. We've heard about that God who defeated all the, the Egyptians. Oh, oh no, we're, we're not. Things aren't going to go well for us on this second day. But notice they say, okay men, in good Philistine fashion, fight. Fight like men. Be firm. Stand strong. It's going to be a long day, but, but fight. Take courage. Be men and fight, they say. And so, so the scene is set, and then in verse 10, in very anticlimactic fashion, the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated. They're all running away scared to their homes, every Israelite. And instead of 4,000 being killed, as, as happened the day before, this time 30,000 soldiers died. It's worse this time with the ark with them. Most importantly, verse 11, the ark of God was captured and Eli's two sons died on the same day just as the Lord had promised. And we'll say more about that in a minute. But, but let's move on. So, so the ark is captured and the sons are dead. Move on to, to verse 12 of chapter 4, the, the death of Eli. So, so a man of Benjamin, unnamed, but he's from the tribe of Benjamin, he returns to Shiloh after the feed, and he comes the same day. And so he, he's got dirty hair and he's got torn clothes. It's clear what's happened. And Eli is waiting for news. It says his heart trembled for the ark of the Lord. And so the messenger gets, gets through the gates of the city and tells them what happened, and the whole city is, is in an uproar. And so Eli, he's blind, he doesn't see what's happening, but he hears, and so he says, well, what's happened? 
the messenger runs and tells Eli next. He tells him three things. He said that Israel has fled. There's been great defeat. Many are dead, including your two sons. And third, the ark has been captured. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that as soon as the ark is mentioned, is when Eli falls over and dies. Nothing upon hearing about defeat, not even hearing about the death of his two sons, does, does he respond. It's when, it's when it's conveyed to him that the ark is captured, that he falls over in his chair and dies. I think Eli knew the significance of, of what that meant. The ark has been captured. I can't help but think if Eli feels the weight of his role in the ark being captured. What have I done? He had judged Israel for 40 years, the text says. And just like that, he falls and dies. Notice he's a heavy man. We know why he's fat, don't we? Him and his sons were taking all the meat that wasn't theirs. I think that's, I think that's included so that we know. He was enjoying the profits of his sons. But that's not even the end of the tragedy for Eli's family. Is it? Look there at verse 19. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, wife of one of his sons, she was pregnant about to give birth. And when she hears about what's happened, she hears about the defeat and the death of, of, her, son, of her husband and then also of her father-in-law. She gives birth and she dies also. This, this, is, this is tragedy for the house of Eli. But before her death, she names a child Ichabod, saying the glory has departed from Israel. The glory has departed, for the ark has been captured, she says. And it does seem, in fact, that the glory has departed. The, the Israelites have been abandoned. 30,000 dead, and the ark on its way with the Philistines. Their, their leaders were gone, and their source of hope, the ark, was gone also. The Philistines and their gods had defeated Israel and their god. Desolation, hopeless scene, the glory has departed. Well, well, before we move to chapter 5, I do want to make a few points of application just from, from chapter 4. Now, the first thing simply to make is, is that God's word is sure. Did you, did you notice that? When God declared to Eli last, last week that, that his house would be judged for their sin, the Lord told Eli a sign that this is going to happen is that both of your sons are going to die on the same day. That's what he told Eli, and that's exactly... What happens? The word of the Lord was proved true. The Lord was willing to, to undergo embarrassment in, in Philistia, at least for a while, in order to rid Shiloh of its corrupt leadership. He wouldn't be dishonored at Shiloh anymore. He was taking care of that. He was judging the sons of Eli. And they were both killed on the same day as, as a form of judgment, divine judgment. God's word is sure. The second application is simply that God will not be manipulated. I think this is the clearest application from this text. God will not be manipulated. Not only did the Israelites think that the absence of the ark was the reason for their first defeat, they were also convinced that simply having the ark was going to change everything. All I got to do is get that box here and everything's good. After all, God wouldn't let his people be defeated two days in a row, would he? Especially if he were here with us. He wouldn't suffer shame and defeat, would he? And so, so they were thinking if they put God on the hook, so to speak, he'd have no choice but to come through. It's like they could twist his arm to do what they wanted him to do. And we see clearly from the outcome of the battle, God will not be manipulated. He won't be coerced into doing anything. You can't manipulate the Lord. You see, the Israelites were not as concerned about the relationship with God as they were about the benefits of their relationship with God. I mean, let's not forget that these people, for the most part, had no concern for the commands of God. They did whatever they wanted. 
They didn't deny themselves anything. They, they didn't care to love him above all else. They weren't devoted to him alone. But when they could fall back on their seemingly special relationship with God, they acted as though they had every right to expect him to bless them. Well, you're covenant people. You're going to do, do what you do. You're going to save us. They wanted God's benefits, but they didn't want God. And this is what I see all over the place in today's world. I mean, I, I see it outside the church and I see it inside the church. There are numerous ways that, that people misappropriate a relationship with God. I mean, you think about the athlete who thinks that because they say a prayer, I mean, how many, how many high school and college and professional football teams say the Lord's Prayer before a game? And they think because we say a prayer, because, because I gave God a shout out in my post-game interview that I'm going to be good. I'm going to the Hall of Fame. And I'm giving glory to him when, when their life looks nothing like what God would want it to look like. Or I think about the student who doesn't apply himself to his work at all. But all of a sudden, when the final exam comes, this, this student turns religious and says, God, help me. Bless what I'm about to put on this paper as if God's going to magically say, oh, okay, because you asked for my help, I'm going to give you an A. Surely God will help me pass. Right? That's a manipulation. Or I think about the parent or the grandparent whose life doesn't model spiritual growth or evidence any spiritual health or prioritize faith at all. Who thinks, because I've been in church my whole life, surely God's going to save my kids and my grandkids. I've done my part. He's going to do his now. And the person who thinks, well, well, I gave up this and this and this, and all, it was all for God. I did it all for God. Surely he's going to pay me back and make my life turn out the way that I want it to. And so on and so forth. All these things are examples that, that I've seen, ways that I'm tempted to, to manipulate. God, well, hear me say this morning, if you ever catch yourself thinking, if I just do this, then God will do that. Be warned, God will not be manipulated. He will not. You know that manipulation is at work when the church stops confessing, thou art worthy, and begins chanting, thou art useful. And how, how do you view your relationship with God? You can't put God into your debt. Now, I just want to make this point very clear, because there's one way that I see people, that I hear people try and manipulate God more than any other. I've heard it over and over and over. Maybe you're guilty of it here this morning. But it's this, when, when I think, if I do the right things, meaning pray a right prayer, get baptized, join the church, attend all the meetings, tell others about the Lord, try my best to be the best dad or worker or mom or brother that I can, try my best to live a good life, then surely, surely God is going to help me out. Surely he's going to receive me into glory. Surely he will accept me because I'm doing all these things that he wants me to. Can I tell you, that way of thinking is no better than the Israelites attempting to manipulate God by bringing the ark from Shiloh. God will not be manipulated. He does not bestow eternal life or favor or smile on the one who does the right things. That's not how it works. He just doesn't. If you're looking to anything that you do as a means to get God to do something, good grades, good life, good final destination, you're guilty of the rabbit foot theology that we see at work here. God saves according to his mercy and according to his mercy alone. 
When God saves you, he doesn't save you just to give you good stuff. He saves you to give you himself. You get God. And that's better than anything. He's all you need. And when you look to God to give you things other than what God has promised, you're not looking to the God of the Bible. You're looking to a genie in a bottle. God will not be manipulated. Hear that this morning. And then lastly, from this first section, we see that the glory has departed, or or the Ichabod syndrome. Lastly, from chapter 4, we see the sad reality of the state of Israel. Eli's daughter got it right. His daughter-in-law got it right. The glory had departed. In an act of divine judgment, the presence of the Lord had been removed. It had. And we can't disassociate this judgment from the corrupt leadership of Eli, more specifically Eli's sons. In other words, God would not allow his name and reputation to undergo the scandal in Shiloh any longer. He was done. And so his glory departed. Now, of course, it came through an enemy's victory, but nevertheless, his glory departed. And I think there's a lesson for us as a church here. I think there's a lesson for Fox Hill Road Baptist Church. And that lesson is simply that we're not exempt from the possibility of the glory departing from here. We're not exempt. We see it all over the place. Churches all over the peninsula, all over the nation, where his glory has departed in an act of judgment. And this is a a charge that Jesus makes against the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2. He says, this thing I have against you. This is Revelation 2, verse 4 and following. He says, I have this against you. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember from where you've fallen and repent. Do the works you did at first. If not, here's, here's here's the warning, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. I think that's, I will remove my presence from you unless you repent. And so I think if we as a church, if if I as a pastor, if we ever lose sight of the main thing, we're heading towards an Ichabod existence. We're not exempt. Like I said, it's all over the place. Church is dying. Some slower than others, but churches that once hosted hundreds of members, churches that once had parking lots and pews filled with, with memories of choir tours and revivals galore, but now empty and dead, lifeless. And what happened? What happens? How, how does it go from one to the other? More times than not, the glory has departed because the church has lost their first love. They lost their way. The main thing was no longer the main thing. A church that does not live and breathe and find its being in Jesus Christ and his gospel is a church that's on its way towards death. No matter how good it is, no matter how good what you're pursuing is, if it's not the main thing of Jesus Christ and his gospel, you're headed towards death. Sometimes it'll take a few years, sometimes a few decades, but God will remove his glory and allow a church to die before he will allow his name and reputation to be slandered by a church bearing his name. Don't let that be Fox Hill Road Baptist Church. Don't let us lose our first love. Then lastly, chapter five. The ark among the Philistines. Or the ark, am- the, yeah, the ark among the Philistines. The story picks back up with the Philistines who, who are more than ecstatic. Not only have they defeated the Israelites, but, but now they have their God. We got them. We got the ark. They've, actually, they've captured the Ark of the Covenant, which, I mean, think about the scene. The Israelites are being dismantled by the Philistines, and every Israelite soldier is either dead, and the ones that aren't dead are, are running tail between their legs back home. And there's one thing that sits there, just sitting there, totally abandoned. The Ark of the Covenant, just sitting there. Israel is running 
and the ark is just sitting there. So the Philistines, they take it. And the first thing they do is they set it up into their temple, into the temple of their god, Dagon. And it says that it sets it in its place. Now in doing so, now this is important to, to catch, in doing so, the language that's used when they set the ark in its place, the Philistines are placing the symbol of Israel's God in the stronghold of Dagon, which reflected the Philistines' understanding of, of the theological dimension of, of their military conquest. In other, in other words, the Philistines had prevailed over the Israelites, they believed, because Dagon had proven superior to Yahweh on the divine battlefield. They won because their God was stronger. So they're going to put the Israelites' God on a shelf subservient to Dagon. That's what they're doing in putting the ark in its place. The Philistines think it's fitting that Yahweh should exist as an attendant in the household of Dagon. He was the lesser God. He lost. The Philistines had won and and the Israelites' God had been revealed as inferior to Dagon. So they put the ark in the temple. Now as we know, and as the Philistines were soon to find out, the Lord doesn't lose. Ever. He doesn't lose. So notice verse 3. The next day they go into the temple. Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Face on the ground, prostrate before the Lord, before the God of Israel. What's this position? This this position of worship. Face down before the Lord. This, This powerful God named Dagon. And so the Philistines do the only thing you can do with such a powerful God. They lift him up and they put him back in his place. Right? Do you see the irony there? Dagon, this powerful God, couldn't even pick himself up. Right? He's sitting there. Uh, someone come help me. Can't get up. Stuck on the floor. Their God, thought to be so, so powerful in the battlefield and the confines of his own dwelling, didn't even have the strength to lift his face out of the dust. And so they put him back in his place. Verse 4. Round two, they rise the next morning, only to find Dagon on the ground again. Which shows it wasn't just a coincidence, it wasn't just an earthquake, it wasn't just a, 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 some wind blowing through the temple. Right? This, this was an intentional act. So now Dagon has fallen again. But more than that, notice what's different about Dagon the second time. His head and his hands are cut off. Cut off. Gone. Severed from his body. One commentator said, a regular Humpty Dumpty situation with no Elmer's glue. <laughs> the second incident makes a stronger point than the first. This time, with head and hands removed, Dagon has been conquered by the God of the Israelites. This is, this is not accidental. The removal of head and hands was reminiscent of grisly military executions. When you conquered someone, that's what you did. You cut off their heads and their hands to show they had been completely defeated. And so here on the, on, the, on the threshold floor, we see Dagon without his head in his hands. The Philistines conquering divine hero had been humbled and then mercilessly executed in his own house. And we see Dagon never really stood a chance. And then the story closes with, with multiple scenes of panic and felicity. Wherever the ark was taken, the hand of the Lord was heavy against them. Somewhat reminiscent of, of the plagues, plagues in Egypt, the hand of the Lord was clearly afflicting them with tumors. The people of Ashdod say, no, no, get away from us. We're done with it. We don't want to mess with this ark or the God of Israel. Send it somewhere else. So leaders get together and say, okay, let's try this next city. Okay, it goes to Gath. The people of Gath are afflicted. They say, get away from us. Get it out of here. We're afflicted. We don't want this anymore. So they send it to another city, Ekron. And as soon as it gets there, the people start screaming, no, 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 no. Maybe it was a lottery. No, I can't believe they chose us. Get it out of here. 
And so the Philistine leaders, they come together and decide this has to go back to its place. They've seen very clearly its place is not in Dagon's temple and its place is not among them. So they say, we've got to send it back to its place. It's got to go back to Israel. And that's where, that's where our, our text ends this morning with chapter 12. And, and next week, this, the, arc, the story of the ark part two, we'll see the return of the ark. But as we close this morning, let me make two final applications from chapter five. The first one is simply, there are no other gods. I mean, that's clear, isn't it? Dagon is no god. He's no rival. The Lord has no rivals. There's only one god. Dagon has been shown to be powerless. In fact, he's shown to be nothing more than what he really is, a statue. He's a statue. I mean, listen to, listen to Psalm 115. This is verses 3 through 8. Psalm 115 and, and the folly of idolatry. Listen to what the psalmist says. Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Our God is in the heaven and does all that he pleases. That's, that's the one true God. Contrast, their idols, their so-called gods, are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. Noses, but they don't smell. They have hands, but they don't feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. That, that, that's the idol's. That's the false gods. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Psalm 115.8. Listen, there are no other gods. There's nothing else in all creation that deserves your worship, that deserves your trust. There's only one God. And we may not worship Dagon, but when we worship or serve anything else in his place, we lose. Whatever it is, whatever you use in creation to fill or to satisfy or to trust in, you're going to lose if it's not the Lord who's in the heavens and does all that he pleases. We never find satisfaction. Instead, we become like our idols, lifeless and useless. We ought to heed the warning of Dagon and the Philistines. There's only one God. And then lastly, what I say is the, the most encouraging part of this passage, the Lord never loses. The Lord never loses. Even when it seems like he loses, he never loses Things sure did seem to be getting out of hand, didn't it? 30,000 Israelites laying dead on the battlefield. Every other Israelite, tail tucked, running home. The ark being shipped back with the Philistines. Things, things seemed out of hand. In fact, it appeared as though the Lord had lost. I mean, what else are you going to say? The Lord seemed to lose. That's what it looked like. But in the end, we see the Lord never loses, Ever. This whole time, this entire process was the Lord enacting his divine plan. And he was acting behind all of it in order to rid Israel of its corrupt leadership and to exalt himself over Dagon. It was all according to plan. The Lord never loses, even when it seems like it. I mean, even, even when the anointed Son of God, hanging, dead on a cross, defeated, Lifeless, put in a grave, no, no breath left in his body, conquered, losing, losing. You see, when everything seems to say God has lost, the story is over, put a period, that's when God's work becomes most evident. Yes, he was crucified. Yes, he was dead. Yes, he was buried. But, but three days later, up from the grave, he arose with a mighty, mighty triumph for his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever, never to die again with his saints 
to reign. He arose. So even when it was hopeless, the Savior has been dead, crucified, defeated. He still wins, always. God never loses. And this is great news for us. It's encouraging for us, his people. If you're a Christian here, if your faith is in Christ who has risen from the grave, God has made some great and precious promises to you. You will never lose as his child. Never. Now, that doesn't mean go play in the lottery. It doesn't mean bet on Virginia to win it all. And that's not what it means. But what it does mean is that whatever you're facing, whatever challenges or trials that you are going through that scream to you as you're going through these trials, you're, you're hearing it from all your circumstances. Your God has left you. You're on the wrong team. In vain have you kept your faith in him. It's all useless. Right? That's what your trials and your pain and your suffering, that's what it's screaming to you. But in the face of all that, be encouraged because God never loses. Nothing gets victory over him. Nothing conquers him or his people. Take heart. You will be vindicated. You will eventually be victorious, believer. All things are working together for your good. For those who love God and are called according to his purposes. So take heart. Take heart. If God, if the God of Israel is for you, who can successfully be against you? No one. Take heart. Let's, let's close in prayer.